welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, David's sin is not the end. And now he moves to deal with the Ammonites as he should have before this mess started. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21. Once again, that's 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 and 18. It's a verse most of you have likely heard a thousand times. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and then has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Hmm. This would be the equivalent of your very worst enemy coming to you, begging you to forgive for all the horrible things that they've done to you. And not only do you reconcile with them, you forgive them, but then you give them the responsibility to do your your work. You trust them with everything. Not only does he make us a new creation, but he reconciles us to himself. God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He reconciles us to himself and then he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Like we're all of a sudden like the counseling expert on how to have great relationships. And yet that's what the scripture says that God has done for us. This is the difference between Christianity and every other faith. Every other faith promises some kind of do these things and you'll be okay after you die. Every other religion promises some kind of that, whether it's you're, you're Buddhist and Hindu and you go to Nirvana or whether you're, you're, you know, believe in Islam and you keep the five pillars and you go to your paradise. And if you're a guy, you get your 35 virgins. Whatever it is, there's always some way, shape or form of do these good things and you'll be okay after you die. Christianity instead says, come and die to who you've been. And watch Jesus do good things through you from now into all eternity. Any other idea, any other idea is not Christianity. Any other idea is not the biblical faith. And so if people like David cannot be redeemed and used by God, if they have no hope, if they have no future... I would recommend, if that's your mindset, you start calling yourself something else because that is not Christianity. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then it goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. That's all of the verdict upon all of us. Not just David or people like David. After David went and worshipped, he made the long walk back to his house. And when he had required, they set bread before him and he did eat. After he'd worshipped, he began to attempt to resume normal life. 
And so we're going to see now in verse 21, because his servants didn't understand why David was initially praying, his now behavior confuses them. Verse 21, and then said his servants unto him, what thing is this that you have done? You did fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead, you did rise and eat bread? We don't understand. So David answered, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me? The child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David explains why he was praying in the first place here. It wasn't to twist God's arm. He fasted, he wept with tears, crying out to God for the life of the child because he said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me? The word to be gracious, it means to show an action of kindness, pity, or compassion. David had already experienced that kind of mercy because God didn't execute him like he deserved. So David's prayer wasn't, God, I'm going to hurt myself until you save this child. David's prayer was, God, please give me something I don't deserve. Let there be another way to communicate that you will not be mocked. Whatever path it is, I'll do it. Let there be another way. David denied himself, not out of self-harm, but because he wanted God to see that this was his top priority. That eating regular meals, sleeping in his bed, the simple comforts of life, they were all really low on the priority list. He wanted God to know that this man who had had a lustful passion become the end-all, be-all of his life for an entire year, that that man had changed. And that maybe, just maybe, that change could serve as an alternative method of speaking to the world about what he'd done. Once that hope of an alternative method to communicate truth to the world was ended, why fast anymore? There was no reason. David had to move on as a changed man, even if everyone, even himself, didn't believe that man deserved a chance to live on. David explained, can I bring him back again? For David to pray for the child's return at this point would be rebellion against God's answer, which was no. Instead, David will put his hope in a future reunion. For he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David here shows his very clear belief in the resurrection of the dead. And so what David says I can focus on right now is making sure I end up in the same place that my son now is. This was the determination that took him down to the temple to worship and then to return to his dining table to be served. I'm going to live forever in such a way that I see him again. Does a man like David deserve to go on living? No. Does a man like him deserve to have God bless him going forward? No. But whether God would do either of those things, he would live for God from now on. And by God's grace, he would finish his life a different man than he'd been for the last year. So if you've had a massive failure in your life, 
one that has deeply wounded those closest to you, that must become your resolution to keep yourself in the love of God, to determine to let Christ live through you to the end of your days, to die a different person than you lived when you did those things. And to the person who will humble themselves like that, the Bible teaches us the Lord gives more grace. If you've ever never watched a documentary film called Tex, it's old and the videography is probably not great. Pastor Chuck helped put it together. Tex is about one of the young people who followed Charles Manson who murdered those people that they broke into their homes and killed them. One of the couples that was murdered by Tex, they had two kids. They were in the home when these guys broke in and murdered their mom and dad. They were believers. And these two kids, they frequently wrote to Tex to share the gospel with him, tell him they were praying for him. Eventually, Tex gave his life to Christ. And they went and visited him in the prison. There are many in the world who would say that's sick. To which I would say, That's pride speaking. Why do you deserve to be visited? What have you done that that God could forgive you, but not this man? What have you done that makes you better? The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I don't know for sure, but my guess is that the part about Jesus wiping away every tear likely happened when David was reunited with his son in heaven. My guess is there were likely many apologies by David and much needed final healing for the foul thing that he did. Now, David's not out of the woods yet because his sin and the consequences did not just impact him. Bathsheba also lost a son. And so in verse 24, there's some interesting things here that are difficult to see in the English translation. It says, And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her. And she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And he, the Lord, sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. We read that and almost sounds like this kind of, oh, and everything is fine. And they went on with their relationship and no big deal. There's a lot more here. The word here for comforted, it means to console someone by expressing your regret for what you did and a desire to fix it. David didn't just come and put his arm around and go, I'm so sorry, honey. This, you know, this was, I can tell you're sad. No, David came to apologize for what he had done. You see, David's sin didn't just affect his son, it affected this woman that he had used, whose life he destroyed, a woman who likely wondered how she could go forward from here. Would God kill every child she'd have? Did she even have a future in God's eyes? We don't have any insight into David and Bathsheba's relationship beyond the affair and then the cover-up. That's it. But if I had to guess... I would also guess that this is the first time that David treated her like a person that God created and loved. It is also likely the first time he apologized. 
And so while these two had shared only great wickedness together up to this point, they now shared great loss and God's discipline together. And I think what David proposes to her at this point is the same hope that he found. I think he proposed that perhaps in God's mercy we can find some way forward as well. Maybe even a fresh start, as absurd as that sounds after the horrible things we've done. And it seems she accepted his apology because the next phrase says that he went in unto her. And I realize the very next thing says that she bare him a child. And so we tend to correlate those two phrases together and say, well, they had sex and she got pregnant. That is not a correct understanding of this phrase, though. The phrase he went in means he began to live with her again. At some point, I don't know if it's just the last seven days, I I don't know when, but at some point, these two became separated. They were not living together anymore. The Bible doesn't give us the details. But when it says he went in, it seems that she accepts his apology and the two decide to move forward and try. Let's try to do the right thing from now on. And so in this reconciliation, she did become pregnant again. He lay with her. That's a separate statement than went in. He lay with her and she bare a son. And he, David, called his name Solomon. Solomon means man of peace. Now, 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 9, states that this name was given to David long before his affair. That God came to David on the same day that God sent Nathan to tell David, hey, you want to build me a house, but you can't. So I want to tell you that I'm going to build you a house. That same day that David learned that the Messiah would come from his line, David tells Solomon, we don't find this out till the end of David's life when David is instructing Solomon about how to be king after him. He tells him, God gave me your name on that day. So before the affair ever happened, before any of this went down, when David was right with the Lord, everything was going great, God told him, the child that's going to be the one who's going to be king after you, you're going to name him Solomon. Solomon means man of peace. David was a man of war. He tells him, this is why I could not build the temple. The third reason why he couldn't build it. I got blood on my hands, son. The Lord told me I'd have a son someday that I would call man of peace. And that he would be the one who would be king after me. Well, isn't it interesting that David decides to name this boy of all of his sons, Solomon. The byproduct of a second chance for those who don't deserve one. He will be the man of peace. He will be better than I was. And it tells us that when David picked that name for Solomon, that God gave the thumbs up. It says, and the Lord loved him. And he sent Nathan the prophet to come to David and give Solomon a special name from God, Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord, beloved of God. Solomon is evidence that when we repent, there is life after awful sin. 
There is hope for blessing and usefulness. And there is grace for those who don't deserve it. Now, I have to say, the final section of this chapter is a bit anticlimactic. But it does bring a conclusion to the situation that started this whole mess in the first place. And we're going to see David's repentance come full circle as he ends the war with Ammon like he should have started it on the front lines. So it tells us in verse 26, And Joab fought against Rabbah of the children of Ammon and took the city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and have taken the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. That phrase fought here and Joab fought against Rabbah, it's in the reflexive voice in the Hebrew. And what it means is, is that there came a point when this all went down bad for David, that David stopped giving orders. Joab was pretty much on his own. So Joab is the one who's taking care of this whole thing as David's going through this whole mess. And in doing so, he captured the city. All that remained was the king's fortress to take. And so he sent messengers to David and he said, listen, this thing's almost done. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together. It's going to be the hardest fight that we're going to have that this up to this point. You encamp against the city, David. You take it, lest I capture it and it be called after my name. Uh, The word actually called after my name means lest I get a name for myself. Joab may be many things, but he is not disloyal to David. He loves David and he's David's strongest supporter despite whatever David has done. And this time, David comes. Verse 29. David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and he took it. And he took their king's crown from off of his head. The weight whereof was a talent of gold. It was with the precious stones. And it was set on David's head. And he brought forth the spoils of the city in great abundance. And then verse 31, nobody really knows what this is talking about. There's lots of debate. It says, he brought forth the people that were therein inside the city of Rabbah, put them under saws, literally placed them inside the saws, placed them inside the harrows of iron and inside the axes of iron. And then he made them pass through the the brick kiln. The brick kiln was the valley where they sacrificed their children to Molech. The Ammonites were Molech worshipers. And thus he did unto all the cities of the children of Ammon. Wherever he came and David conquered the city, he would make them walk through this valley. And so David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Some people believe that David executed each of the Ammonites by these instruments. He sawed them in half or he hacked them with axes or whatever. And then others believe, well, no, he put them to work as slave labor using these types of tools. Whatever it was, we can't know for sure because the language is pretty confusing here. It uses words we're not familiar with. Either way, this was David's way of putting an end to any ideas of a future rebellion from this people group. Now, it seems hard to me personally, if you're going to hack people to pieces with axes and cut them in half with saws to then take them on a walk through a valley where they sacrifice their kids. So I do not believe that David did that. I believe he enslaved them. I believe they became slave labor for the Israelis. But feel free to disagree with me. Either way, it's not good news for the Ammonites. But I do find it interesting that in route to however David dealt with them, he leads them through the place where they had murdered their babies. A tender topic for David at this point in his life, you could say. 
And so David does this with every city, showing that the war wasn't just vengeance on the rebellion, but it was also to put an end to their wickedness. Now, in Psalm 32, it's such an interesting psalm. It's got these four selahs in it. And I, I don't read them because we're not sure if they're in the original text or if they were added later by basically a, a worship leader for instruction, because this is the Jewish songbook. But the selahs, we don't even know whether they're for. A lot of people think they were for a pause. Some people think it was for like a humming sound that they would make or an instrumental. We don't know for sure. But within these selahs of Psalm 32, it breaks up the situation in David's life. This is his prayer after God tells him he's not going to die. And so David first, he says, blessed is the guy who's forgiven because man, the last year and a half has, uh, has been awful for me. He explains, I acknowledge my sin to the Lord. God forgave me. Then he explains, this is what godly people will do. When they sin, we read that verse, thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt surround me with songs of deliverance. Like we talk about that when we're going through a rough time. That's not the context of that verse. The context of that verse is when you sin, when you mess up big time, you need to run to dad because he's the only one who can get you out of the mess. And then we get the Selah and we get this interesting, interesting two verses. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you shall go. I will guide you with my eye. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle. Many commentators believe that this was God's response to David. From now on, David, stop being stubborn. You can't afford to make mistakes like this anymore. Do you see the damage it wrought? I want you to be different. I want to guide you with my eye. I, I don't want to have to put a bridle in your mouth and drag you around because you're screaming to go this way and, and it's danger. I just want to have to look at you and, and you look at me and you go, oh, that's off limits? All right, I'm out. That's where I want you to go from now on, David. Because many sorrows come to those who don't submit to me. So, there's great forgiveness. There's great grace available to us when we blow it big time. There is nothing that we can do that God won't bring us back. But the path is repentance. Lord, I know there are likely some here that the enemy reminds them over and over of their sin and the consequences of that sin and how it affected people around them. Lord, how we wish we could erase our own memories sometimes or get a time machine and somehow, somehow change what we did. The Lord, you call us to move forward. And so, Lord, I pray for those whom the enemy frequently condemns, those who have repented like David did. I pray that you would reveal to them that you've washed them clean. And, Lord, they belong to you. 
And even as you have reconciled them to yourself, you've also committed unto them the ministry of reconciliation. That you still want to use them. They still have a future and a hope. God, we're all sinners in need of your grace. So I pray that you pour it out upon us. Send us out as your ambassadors. Not because, Lord, we qualify because we were good enough. Lord, but because there are those who need to hear the same grace about the same grace we've experienced ourselves. Send us out, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Strong on me will say.